welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Linda Bregan. I'm a senior attorney with the Environmental Law Institute and also a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt University Law School, where we are recording this podcast today. We are delighted to have Tatiana Schlossberg with us here today to discuss her book, Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. And yes, even a veteran environmental lawyer like myself learned a lot from this book. And not to be a spoiler, uh, but I do not feel as happy in my yoga athleisure wear, my cashmere cardigan sweater or binge watching Netflix now that I have read Tatiana's book. But what is so compelling about um, her book is that it takes a lot of really complicated data about the environmental impact we all have, whether it's fashion or food or travel or shopping or internet use. And she summarizes that data in a really accessible manner, including some really sticky facts that you'll remember and talk about with your friends. But I think the most important thing is that she somehow does this with a sense of humor. You you actually smile at times as you read this book, and it's actually entertaining, even though the topic is uh, hardly comical. And I really appreciate that because it's easy to despair at times when we consider how we degrade our environment. And Tatiana recognizes this, but reminds us that this is a natural reaction and that we still need to move forward. She helps us understand how all of our environmental impacts fit together and that we need to keep track of the big picture. So by way of background, Tatiana is a journalist who writes about climate change in the environment. Um, she previously reported on these subjects for, sci- for the science and climate sections of the New York Times, where she also worked on the Metro Desk. Her work has appeared in many prestigious outlets, including The Atlantic, The Boston Globe, Bloomberg, and Yale Environment 360. She is a graduate of Yale and has a master's degree from Oxford. Uh, Before we jump into our discussion, I want to introduce two people here with us today who will pose some questions to Tatiana about her book. First is Ann Davis. Ann is an environmental lawyer and advocate and the former managing attorney for the Southern Environmental Law Center's office here in Nashville. Also with us today is Elizabeth Holden, a third-year law student at Vanderbilt University Law School, who already has an impressive resume as editor-in-chief of the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review and was the moot court champion uh, last year. And I hope she'll bring her generation's perspective to this discussion. So I'd like to start by welcoming you, Tatiana, and asking you, why, why did you decide to write this book, Inconspicuous Consumption? Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I wanted to write this book because I felt um, that, you know, when, when I became a climate and environment reporter, that there was so much missing from this conversation that might make it relevant to people who didn't think that they were already uh, interested or cared about it. And, you know, I, I think part of that was a problem of scale. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we talk about plastic straws, and on the other hand, we talk about a complete transformation of the electricity grid in less than 10 years. Um, and so I, I thought that there might be something in between those two things that would make this issue, you know, relevant to readers in this in the scale and context of their own lives. And so that's why I wanted to write this book, which is about a lot of our stuff. Um, and so I wrote about the internet, food, fashion, and fuel, and how the impacts of a few things in each of those areas um, connect us all to each other through their impacts and connect us to global climate change and uh, environmental degradation in other parts of the world. And so, um, but I thought that having an entry point, which was kind of the the fabric and material of our daily lives might 
help people to kind of see themselves in this problem without making them feel like they were personally responsible for it. Well, you, you really, you did a great job with that. Uh, it, no, it really is. It's a great read. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Ann Davis to ask a few questions. Thank you, Linda, and thank you, Tatiana, for being here. Um, I'm curious, what sparked your interest in the environment? Is that something you've always cared about, or was there a cert certain something that happened at some point that made you really be as passionate about it as you are now? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, like a lot of people in my generation, I saw an inconvenient truth when I was in high school, and um, you know it kind of stuck with me. I mean, I didn't do anything about it, but I, you know, I thought about it, or it kind of made an issue that I had learned about in school in a very abstract way feel really kind of real and urgent. Um, and then when I was a, working as a municipal reporter in New Jersey, I was, uh, you know, covering a bunch of towns there during Hurricane Sandy, and um, that was. I think a, a pretty powerful example to me of how different people um, kind of, I mean, certainly some people were hit harder than others, but you know, no matter where people lived or their income bracket or their race, um, everybody was dealing with this problem, whether it was big cities or um, you know, trailer parks or rural areas. And, and so I kind of really saw how communities responded to that and, and how, you know, I mean, New York City is still repairing the subway and it's eight years later. So. Um, and and then uh, when I was in graduate school, I read a lot of environmental history, um, which which I really loved and kind of put climate change into a historical context for me and made me sort of realize and understand that um, as much as climate change is unprecedented in many ways, we've been dealing with versions of it for as long as people have been extracting resources from our environment and. Um, and to kind of understand it with that long view um, was really interesting for me and made me kind of kept it at the back of my head. But uh, when I was at the New York Times, I, um, I was writing a morning column where I had to wake up. Uh, at, I started work at 4 a.m. every day, and I didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> so, um, and at the time, there were, you know, four people covering climate change at the New York Times. They were all kind of middle-aged guys, and I felt like, uh, you know, that I that I might be able to add a different perspective to that, and, and I also felt, you know, climate change is the biggest story in the world, and it's a story about everything, and um, so from that perspective, from a journalistic perspective, it felt um, like a, a story that I really wanted to be a part of telling, and, and that hopefully I could do it in a different way than, than had been done, because, you know, it is incredibly interesting and compelling. Um, and dramatic and urgent, and people at the time when I started, which was four years ago, uh, people didn't care nearly as much as they do now, which is still not enough. So, so I was very lucky to get to do that. Well, you really did take ownership of it for your generation, and, and it was very interesting uh, to me the four topics that you picked out to discuss. And could you talk a little bit about why you picked these four topics, and then I'd like to go into a little more depth on each of them. Okay. So I wrote the, the four topics in the book are the internet and technology, food, fashion, and fuel. Um, and fuel is kind of a, a grab bag. It has a little energy and a little transportation. So that and food, that's like 75% of greenhouse gas emissions. So I figured I, I kind of had to write about those things. And then, um, but, you know, they're also incredibly interesting. And I, and I thought that I could do, um, that I could cover them particularly 
fuel in a way that hadn't been done before and um, you know writing about things like uh, wood pellets and biomass and um, air conditioning you know I think we often just hear about like wind and solar um, and natural gas and not sort of the the broader spectrum of our uh, energy system um, and then food <laughs> a lot of people have, have heard about food and um, it's kind of that I, I think is one of the areas that people are most aware of but it seems again like I couldn't leave it out <laughs> and then um, the internet and technology and fashion I think were two areas where the environmental impact is not necessarily intuitive or obvious um, particularly the internet and I think part of that is because of the way that we talk about it you know we talk about like the cloud um, and we carry around our phones in our pockets but it really is this big physical system that's switched on and using um, electricity all the time. So kind of illuminating that and illuminating the, um, the impact of producing all of our devices, which requires, you know, mining and shipping and labor um, and different rare materials all over the world and, and what happens to, to those materials when we're done with them was, I think, a really under-reported story. And for fashion, fashion was actually, I think there's been a greater interest in the last six months, but um, it was actually really hard to write about because there was very little information. Um, and so I, you know, for that I had to kind of pick a few materials and, and write about their various impacts. But, um, you know, I think those are the kinds of things that really bring this issue to this to our own lives because we, you know, particularly our clothing, it feels so intimate and it feels like something that just belongs to us, but it really is connected and um, to the global supply chain, and it you know it shouldn't be surprising, even though it was to me because you know textiles were what fueled the industrial revolution and um, have kind of always been a big part of global trade. But um, for some reason, you know it didn't it didn't always feel that way. But um, but I think it's really important for for me to emphasize that you know yes, this book is about all of our stuff and our personal habits in in some ways, but it really is not about trying to make anyone um, feel guilty for the things that they do or to suggest that this is a problem that can be fixed only by changing your individual personal behavior because it's a it's much bigger than that and I you know I don't think I think that the narrative of personal responsibility has been destructive in some ways because I, I think it makes us turn away from the problem so um, so I don't think we should feel individually guilty for climate change but I, I think we should feel collectively responsible for building a better world well, I think he definitely um, made me feel um, like not personally responsible, but more collectively, like we're all in this. Mm -hmm. We've all got impacts. And especially uh, following up on Linda's comment, I was shocked to find that the athleisure that I am caught wearing most days now <laughs> has a really bad impact on the environment. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, so one of the... so. Athleisure primarily is made from synthetic fabrics, which are made from oil, um, which is also kind of crazy when you when you think about it. But um, producing polyester um, is, I think, I may get the number wrong, but I think it's somewhere, it's like the equivalent of, uh, or resulting emissions of like 140 million tons of uh, carbon dioxide every year. And that's just polyester, which is the, you know, that's the most common synthetic fiber, but... Um, we still use a lot of others. Um, so, you know, it uses a lot of oil and resources and energy to, to produce this stuff, but 
kind of the more insidious problem is that the, you know, since these our clothes are made of plastic, um, they kind of in when we put them in the washing machine they spin off little pieces of fiber, um, which are too small to be caught by the water filter in our washing machines, and so they can end up in our um, in our wastewater systems. And if they're not caught by the wastewater treatment plants, they can end up in the ocean. Um, and if they settle into the sludge in wastewater treatment plants, um, you know, that's often used as fertilizer for agricultural fields, and so they can get into our water system or our food system that way. So I think, um, you know, this is something that I, that I had heard of, but there's been a ton of fixation on the ocean plastic problem, but really none on, on this issue. And we're, people are finding these plastic fibers everywhere, whether it's, you know, the deepest part of the ocean, but also Himalayan glaciers, um, you know, freshwater lakes everywhere. So um, it really is kind of this, this massive um, pollution problem. And some scientists think that, you know, microfiber plastic pollution is the most abundant form of pollution on Earth. So that was kind of really... Um, Staggering because I feel like it is within, definitely within my lifetime, maybe within the last ten years, that everyone is just wearing exercise clothes all the time. So, uh, <laughs> so um, which in some ways is a great development. Yes, <laughs> very comfortable, wicks your sweat. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's really easy for us to kind of just enjoy the convenience and not not look much farther than that. And it's not just the um, exercise clothes, but it's the fleece vest and, yes. and the fleece jackets, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's anything that's made of synthetic fibers, but fleece, um, you're right, fleece sheds the most. It can shed up to 100,000 fibers with a single wash, um, and which is kind of, you know, and Patagonia sponsored a big study um, uh, at, I think, the University of Santa Barbara on this issue. And, you know, they had created these plastic fleeces as a way to figure out what to do with um, leftover plastic bottles and, you know, to, to make something new from them and then it, you know, creates this additional problem. So it's a, I think, a good example of uh, no good deed <laughs> goes unpunished. <laughs> but um, but also, you know, that using all of the resources that we do, particularly fossil fuels, I mean, those don't go away. Um, and they're, you know, they, they end up in another, um, in our environment in other ways, whether that's plastic pollution or emissions or something else. So um, moving from uh, fashion to energy, you, you took a very interesting perspective on energy because you talked about a topic a lot of people don't know about, which is coal ash, and something that's how you and I met when you were covering a story about coal ash. So could you talk a little bit about the problem of coal and the problem of coal ash that a lot of people don't see? Yeah, so... Um well, I, reporting the story on coal ash, which is what brought me to Nashville, um, and when I met Anne and some of the other lawyers from the Southern Environmental Law Center, uh, I wouldn't say it changed my life, but it changed my life, um, <laughs> because I, um, you know, it, like Anne said, most people don't know about it, and once I learned about it, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe that not everybody knows about it and that we don't talk about it all the time. Um, and it really has been um, a, a really kind of motivating uh, issue for me and one that I hope that more people understand. Um, so coal ash is the byproduct of burning coal for electricity. And I think when we think about coal or talk about coal, we maybe we talk about greenhouse gas emissions or we know about mining and some of the impacts of that, but we don't really think about what happens 
to coal when it's burned, and um, it creates this, uh, well, it can't be burned entirely, so there's a lot of residue left over, which used to be kind of just puffed out of the stacks of um, power plants, but um, you can't do that anymore, so now it's usually flushed out of power plants in water, um, and then stored in sort of dammed off sections of rivers and lakes near um, power plants. It's um, it's one of the largest solid industrial waste streams in the U.S. We produce more than 100 million tons of it every year in almost every single state. Um, it contains mercury, lead, arsenic, cadmium, selenium, strontium. Tell me if I'm forgetting any. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, all these different substances that can be hazardous to human health and uh, you know, it can seep into the groundwater from where it's stored, even though it's not supposed to, um, or escape into the air, depending on on how it's stored. Um, and it uh, disproportionately, I mean, those pollutants can cause a range of diseases from, uh, you know, cancer to um, other lung problems or um, low birth weight, I think, and, and other things. But um, But, you know, it disproportionately impacts communities of color, uh, low-income communities, and rural communities, um, you know, who suffer from this pollution. And, you know, I grew up in New York. We don't have a coal-fired power plant in the city. So, I, you know, I never had to think about coal ash, and, and that's such a luxury um, to not have to know what it is. And there are millions of Americans who do and um, and have to live with the effects every day. And, and realizing that, um, you know, that we can be so separated from the consequences of our actions, like, you know, turning on the light bulb, um, but that somebody somewhere else is suffering from that was a really, kind of made it very clear to me how, how we are all implicated in these systems and all connected to them. And, um, you know, learning about your work and the work of the Southern Environmental Law Center and kind of what you were all doing to to make sure that people were protected from these dangerous substances that they can't even see or don't even know about was so um, powerful and important to me. Talking about energy, you said you've got um, one suggestion in your book that is something I've, I know I should do it, and I think about it from time to time, but it's something everyone can do, and, and that is pay attention to what energy your devices are using mm-hmm. when you're not using them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I have a chapter on vampire power, which um, is, you know, the devices that, or the power that your devices use when you think that they're off. So, you know, I tested a lot of my appliances and appliances of friends, which um, people didn't love, but uh, <laughs> when you go over to their house and unplug all of their stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, it was like my cable box, which was, you know, I wasn't watching TV, but it was, you know, drawing in more power than somebody in, Haiti uses in a year, um, so it's uh, it's it's kind of incredible, and um, you know I forget about it too. But I I was I did remember recently I went away and I uh, turned off my cable and my router before I left. So, um, but you know it's it's not that that you know if you don't do those things that means you're a bad person or an industrial polluter, but just that you know this use of energy and resources can be so unconscious, um, but it, it really, it can be meaningful, um, you know, over the long term. Um, and I, I love the title of your book, um, Inconspicuous Consumption, because all these impacts that you talk about are really because of our habit of just consuming, consuming, consuming without mm-hmm. thinking about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's been uh, <laughs> drilled into us, you know, that that like, that's kind of, how our economy works and um, 
and you know this kind of scalability and growth is really um, kind of what what has defined success. But I think you know we have not as a global society been able to decouple growth in GDP from growth in greenhouse gas emissions. And so you know I think at some point we're going to have to re-examine sort of what it means to grow and what it means to succeed and um, you know and and how to do both of those things responsibly. Um, and the last topic you talk about is food, and, and that's kind of food production and food waste. And it, will you tell us a little bit about what the problems are with the way we interact with food? Where to begin? Um, I, <laughs> um, you know, I think some of the things that people have heard are actually true, which is, you know, like eating red meat uses a lot of um, energy and resources, and and that's not and produces a lot of emissions, um, and that's not just from you know like the cows themselves, but sort of how we feed them, um, and we primarily feed them corn and soybeans, and corn in particular requires a ton of fertilizer use, and I think you know people are sort of familiar with the idea that corn is sort of in everything we eat from you know reading Michael Pollan's book, and and there's some awareness of that, but um, you know I think like. The fact that you know so much fertilizer is used um, in the—I mean, that there's enough corn <laughs> grown in the Midwest to actively change the climate is is pretty incredible. But that we use so much fertilizer that we're you know kind of killing freshwater systems and and the Gulf of Mexico um, for you know corn that doesn't even need to be produced um, because you know we produce so much of it and so much is used in ethanol and. Um, so I think, you know, the incentives are really off in, in our food system um, because, you know, farmers can be given government subsidies to grow corn, which is then put in our gasoline, which we don't necessarily need. It's not cleaner. So everything is, is kind of out of whack. Um, but I think so, and, and people may be familiar with that and familiar with issues around food waste and how, and I know Linda is doing a lot of work on that, but that, you know, we waste about... 30 to 40 percent of the food that we produce, um, which is so upsetting, you know, to th think about how um, lucky we are to that most people have enough to eat and, and mm -hmm. we're willing to throw it away. Um, but I also, I really wanted to write about the oceans in s somewhere in the book, and so I was able to do that in this section by writing about fish, both, um, you know, how climate change is impacting the oceans, particularly in terms of ocean acidification, but also warming temperatures, and then also from um, aquaculture, which is fish farming. And um, and I think, you know, I think like 20 million people depend on the ocean. No, 20% of the global population depends on the ocean for food. Um, it's their primary source of protein. And, um, you know, we're conducting a major science experiment in the ocean by just pumping CO2 in there and seeing what happens. And, um, you know, and I think most scientists say that that's one of the, outcomes of global warming that they're that they're most concerned about and I think you know most people don't know anything about ocean acidification so I was glad to get to a chance to write about it in the book um, and your book is available in bookstores and also and you've got an audio version right I do and I read it myself 
<laughs> so, so if you like what so. if you like what you hear today, <laughs> there's lots more. <laughs> well, and thanks for all those uh, really um, thought provoking questions. And 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 Tatiana, thank you again for sitting here with us today. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Elizabeth Holden to ask a few more questions, maybe from a little bit of a different perspective, because she is a current law student here at Vanderbilt. So your research looks at uh, systemic issues and how dispersed human behaviors are interconnected with their impact on the environment. But meanwhile, consumers are increasingly interested in sustainable products, and some particularly in our generation have gone as far as to embrace a zero-waste lifestyle. You alluded to this already a little bit, but I'm curious how you see the systemic issues you note in your book fitting with in with individual efforts. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question, and I and I think it's, you know, it's a uh, tricky line to walk in the book between, um, you know, emphasizing that this is a problem that needs to be addressed on a uh, governmental and corporate scale for the most part, while also connecting it to individual lives. And um, so I think that individual behavioral changes are important um, in that they're a place to start. And, but I think that it can't end there. Um, you know, there are not enough people doing enough to to have the, the kind of impact on emissions reduction or reducing waste that we need to substantively address this problem. Um, but I also, like, I don't want to make anyone think that it doesn't matter to, you know, if you, that we should just then therefore use as much plastic as we want and, you know, stuff our faces with hamburgers and sundaes, but, um, which, you know, from time to time. Uh, but, uh, so I, I, so I, I do think that that's, that's really important, but I, I don't want people to kind of lose sight of the larger um, issues because I think people can, it's really easy to get totally wrapped up in trying to figure out how to make the sustainable choice and making the sustainable choice is often impossible <laughs> because of the system that we mm -hmm. live in. And mm -hmm. I think too much responsibility has been placed on the consumer to make the sustainable choice when usually we don't have enough information to know if, you know, this pair of jeans is better than that pair of jeans. Um, and really, it, that should be addressed at the, the corporate level, either through, you know, their voluntary reductions or um, kind of industry standards or government regulations. And, you know, because, for example, with light bulbs, although um, that has recently been changed, you know, if you eliminate incandescent bulbs from the market, it's not up to the consumer then to, de to decide whether to buy the mm -hmm. very efficient right. LED bulb or the... Um, energy intensive incandescent bulb, you know, all of the bulbs are more efficient. And so I think kind of eliminating that choice is helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say my family and friends are tired of me um, grilling the um, weight person at the restaurant about whether the swordfish came from the Pacific Ocean <laughs> or the Atlantic Ocean and how was it caught. And of course, they don't have right. any idea, but I still have my fish card from the Monterey Bay Aquarium right. and I want to make a sustainable choice, but the information isn't there. Yeah. So I, I think, so it, you know, so I don't want people to feel like if they can't make the sustainable choice, therefore they give up. And I, you know, I do right. think, you know, every, we can't all do everything, um, but, you know, you can pick something that you care about and do that. And then also, you know, remember that voting is kind of the single most important individual action that anyone can take and voting for politicians who have, um, you know, advocate for climate action and not only climate action, but, you know, um, uh, pollution regulations and, and things that are so important that people don't often think has anything to do with their own lives. So, um, but you know, I, 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 so I want people to do what they can, but I also don't want anyone to feel like 
um, they're failing if they don't do exactly <laughs> what um, you know they they think they're supposed to because you know I think if we only think about ourselves and the impacts of our personal actions, we let those who are really responsible off the hook, mm -hmm. um, and that's you know fossil fuel companies and lobbyists and um, the politicians who protect them. So and, and at the same time, individual actions, even if you are only doing a few things in aggregate do add up. Yeah, so right, it is right. it is a balance, as you're saying. Thank you. That was a very thoughtful answer. Um, and so my last question is just that in your time reporting, um, ending on a positive note, what has been the most encouraging news that you encountered relating to climate mitigation and adaptation? Um, well, it's kind of related to, to what we were just talking about, but I, I uh, wrote about this village in England that um, you know, and I guess I wrote the story in 2017. So in 2007, they had just decided, like, on their own, that they were going to try to be the first carbon neutral village in England. And you know, they refused to take any help from uh, anyone in government, and they wouldn't let anybody, any politicians, come talk to them because they didn't want it to be a partisan issue. And they just sort of everyone in the town, kind of, you know, they they took a uh, carbon footprint of their town, and everyone kind of did what they could to try to reduce it. And like 10 years later, which is when I wrote about them, they weren't carbon neutral <laughs> at all. But everyone in the village was aware um, of the effort and of trying to kind of rein in their their emissions and their waste. And, you know, most people had stopped kind of traveling for work and they were doing telecommuting. And, um, and you know, a lot of people had gotten rid of dryers and things like that. So it was really... Um, kind of nice uh, in like a, in a communal way to see that people, you know, that it was possible to kind of work together to, to achieve something and that it didn't have to be, I think, what we often see in this country, which is like acrimonious and political mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and some kind of, you know, moral stance rather than like, well, let's just see what we can do to try. And I, you know, I think that just even in my time reporting on this, which, you know, it's been four years, like in the last year has changed dramatically and I think you know the interest that people have shown um, the school strike for climate um, you know the level of attention that it's receiving in the democratic primary I mean some people might say a seven-hour climate town hall is, is too much uh, <laughs> but um, but I you know I think that that level of interest and concern is really um, is exciting and I and I hope that it you know we're able to keep that momentum going so, um, and I just want to um, congratulate you for your work in bringing awareness to this. And, you know, we talked a little bit about coal ash and how most people didn't know about it. But the way we met is when you did an excellent in-depth article for the New York Times about coal ash and what it was doing on su southern rivers, basically, mm -hmm. um, and, and covered our trial against TVA, who has been polluting with coal ash for years. Um, so your reporting has brought a lot of awareness to all these issues, and your book brings even more. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it really does. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion, and I'd, I'd like to wrap up with one last question, because you touched on a lot of this in the discussion, but just as a, a nice sort of summary takeaway for listeners, um, what do you most hope people will do? after they read your book. Mm -hmm. And I have to add the caveat, does that change at all depending on whether the same president is elected in November, <laughs> which will make systemic change much harder? You know, the most important things that anybody can do, um, you know, is to vote. 
again, um, as I mentioned before, and to get involved in the political process. And, you know, whether that's kind of volunteering for a candidate or for an organization, you know, an environmental group or nonprofit, something like that. Um, but, you know, again, because this issue does have to be addressed on a governmental, regulatory, corporate level, that's sort of where we need um, action to happen. So voting is the most important thing. Um, you know, the other most important thing to do is, you know, we don't have to support companies that don't at the very least tell us about um, their practices. And, um, you know, again, it is it is really hard to get that information sometimes, but there are ways to do it. I mean, for fashion, there's a, an app that's called Good On You, which does a lot of rating for different brands. But, um, but you know, again, like transparency is kind of the baseline. And, and if people aren't being transparent, then, you know, we don't we don't have to support them. And again, we don't have to keep electing politicians who, you know, who also are not transparent about what their policies are, mm -hmm. or where their money comes from. Um, and the third most important thing, I think, is to talk about climate change. I think, you know, and, and the environment. I think for people who are listening to this podcast, probably, um, and for all of us, you know, we talk about it or think about it all the time, but you know, only about a third of Americans say that they talk about climate change with their friends and family at all. And But once they do, they're more likely to support, uh, to consider it a risk and to support policies to mitigate it. And so I think um, talking about climate change and listening to other people's concerns uh, is really is really important because we do need everybody. Um, and, you know, if um, the president is reelected and the Senate doesn't change, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it, it's, it's hard and we don't have that kind of time. Um, but, you know, if so if that does happen, um, you know, I hope that we see kind of even more leadership on the state and local level, which we're seeing a lot of, and and maybe from from corporations as well. And you know, uh, Jeff Bezos just announced that he was going to give ten billion dollars to climate change research. Mm -hmm. If I were him, I would give ten billion dollars to electing a different president and senate. But um, <laughs> but um, you know, I think those kinds of things are are important. And you know, addressing uh, you know there there are lots of different ways to address the, to address this problem and lots of different ways to care about it. And so mm -hmm. I hope that, you know, people read the book that they that they continue to think about this problem in their lives. Well, thank you so much um, for being here today, Tatiana, and also to Ann Davis and Elizabeth Holden. There's more information about Tatiana's timely and compelling book at tatianaschlossberg.com. The book is an easy read, but it is incredibly um, informative. And uh, to listen to more Environmental Law Institute podcasts on a wide range of environmental topics, please check out eli.org front slash podcasts. Thank you so much for listening today, and please share this podcast with your friends. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.